So I am Alon Ben-Mir and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Steve Schlesinger, fellow at the Century Foundation and former director of the World Policy Institute. You can find his full bio on the link for this episode. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you for having and, me. And thank you so much for accepting my invitation. <laughs> so, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> but the list, I should say, in recent years, we are witnessing the rise of nationalism, extreme nationalism, specifically in the Middle East. And, uh, I, you know, I've been thinking about it. Is it a phenomena limited necessarily to the region? Or is it, in fact, more in, in infectious in the sense that we are seeing it elsewhere as well? Like a Brit in Britain, and Brexit is maybe one of that manifestation. Even the election of President Trump, of, of Trump, may have something to do with that whole thing of the rise of the new nationalism. As I'm, as I'm seeing, people are reverting back more to roots, to their roots. How do, you, how do you see that? No, I think you're right. I think, in a sense, we're going back to the ancient tribal yeah. instincts of, of different uh, societies. In the face of globalization, people are very scared about their jobs. They're threatened by foreign intruders, including refugees of one sort or another. There hasn't been, and particularly in the United States, there's been wage stagnation for the last 40 years. Uh, since 2000, again in the United States, um, the country has lost about a third of its manufacturing jobs. So there is this feeling that a lot of people who might otherwise not be so focused on their own nationalistic instincts are indeed gravitating towards those instincts because they can't figure out how else to protect themselves. And then that tribal instinct becomes, we all, you know, we got to close ourselves off from the threat from the outside. That's right. That's I, I fully agree with you. So, see, globalization, as it was painted before, and how the major powers were trying to project that, what was presumably going to bring more wealth, more opportunity for hundreds of millions of people. Well, that apparently did not really materialize. So, and the gap, and there's no question, the gap between the poor and the very rich is a huge, not just in the United States. With a focus on the Arab world and the Arab state, there it's even worse than here in the United States. So when you have hundreds of millions, a hundred, couple of hundred million Arabs who are under the poverty line, and they see no hope and no future. So they're reverting to uh, that, that sense of, of belonging. They want to belong someplace else, they, they need that kind of protection, as you have just said. But where, how where this is going to lead to in the end? I mean, where are we going with this? Well, this is a danger because when people have that kind of apprehension or fear, they tend to look for a strong man to lead them. I honestly think in many ways that explains Trump's triumph in, in the American election, that he said, I will take care of you. I have all these jobs I'm going to create. Me, 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 you know, it's, it's all, a, the burden will be carried by me alone, which is not the traditional way you become president in this country. You tend to 
want to be inclusive and say, I'm president of all the people and we're all going to do this together. And I think that's also true in, in um, actually historically, even more so in the Middle East. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there they have always sought a strong man. I think, by and large, even when they have an opportunity, they would like to see a strong man, but perhaps a benevolent one. That's what they prefer, even over a democratic form of government, which, of course, they are not accustomed to as yet. And uh, democracy is not bringing to them the kind of the job opportunity, the health care, the, the education that they really need. So there's no doubt about it. But going back to actually mentioning Trump, which is interesting, uh, he is projecting that image of strong leader. We don't know if how he, what he's going to deliver. But there's, there's no doubt, I think he was able to tap into that constituency that has been disenchanted and happy, concerned mm -hmm. about the future. And they don't see future. They see, for example, you know, like under Obama, he's done, I think, a great job in improving the economy, reducing unemployment to basically the lowest it's been in a long time. But still, half the population did not benefit. Yeah, this is true. It, it, it actually strikes me as uh, a departure from most elections, which are based on the economic results of that particular moment. And at the time this election happened, unemployment was below 5%, and we basically recovered from the greatest recession since the Great Depression. You would have thought, because of that, it would have automatically resulted in, in, in Hillary Clinton's triumph. But I have to give credit to uh, Trump. He was able to exploit this residual feeling that, yes, maybe for other people it's a success, but there, this particularly white working class in this country just never felt that they were ever being paid attention to or that they were getting jobs or, or the jobs they had were fleeing abroad. And in key states like Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania and, and Michigan, that was the signal pivot point for Trump's triumph. So, yes, uh, Obama, you have to say that he did a very good job in bringing us out of this terrible economic plight, but it was not enough for no, this election. Yeah. You know, I, I have a... Um, country home and I go there once in a while, every, sometime every weekend, and it's a little town, we see so many of these little towns, that basically is becoming a ghost town. People closing, shops are being closed. I mean, the only thing you see left is a gas station. And that is so rampant, and I'm going there and we stop in various towns, that's what you see. And you wonder, why is it? What's happened? And, and, and I think this is, this is exactly what Trump was able to, to look, see, identify, point out, and capitalize on it. But let me go back to the issue of nationalism. I, I also, of course, I link, of course, the radicalization to that sense of search for identity, specifically in the Middle East. What do you see? What do you see that? The radicalization of the youth, and to what extent that is connected to the national movement to seek identity, to seek a sense of belonging. Uh, like we say, you said before, you know, the, the, the search for or to belong to even a tribal mentality uh, that is taking place. So how do you see that? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting point because a strong man can 
tap into that discontent and create his own movement. Um, and the radicalization becomes part of his as gestalt as, as a leader. Uh, but at the same time, there's a whole other component, religious radicalization, which unless you are running a, a country like Iran where the religious and, and the state are part of the same thing, it can be actually contrary to the to the interests of the strong man. And uh, in, in the Middle East, it seems to me you have very strong religious radicalization, which is not being necessarily controlled by the state's dictatorships and, and uh, otherwise strong leaders. So radicalization seems to me comes in, in a lot of different forms. It can come in, in, in the nationalist nation form. It can come in the religious form. It can come in, I suppose, a cultural form. I mean, there are different kinds of national feelings that people express. But at least in the Middle East, it seems to me it, it, it's both political and religious. And religious. And I think this is, this is, this is the thing. Like the rise of ISIS would have been impossible. Uh, surely there were the circumstances in the wake of the Arab War, of the Iraq War, our um, terrible mishap by dismantling the state and basically leaving a lawless, lawlessness there. And so, um, beginning with Abu Zarqawi, and after his uh, demise, the movement continued. And then it is, basically, ISIS was formed as early as. 2004, and and finally come, come came to the fore a couple two almost three years ago. But the choice, the means by which to rise to that the to power, was religion. That is, religion as they see it is a means by which you are a believer. You don't question your set of belief, and if you want to have that sense of belonging, you come to us. And you don't question it. If God ordained it, so it should be. So it must be. So I absolutely agree with you that he, in this case, religion became a powerful, powerful tool because it is not subject to criticism. That's right. You, you have to buy into it totally. You buy into it and you have become part of it. Yeah. And you, don't, and you are prepared to die for it exactly. because you are not questioning it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, as I see it now, Surely, I think ISIS will eventually be defeated. I, I've been saying time and again, they may be defeated in Iraq and in Syria, and they probably will, but their ideology as such will last much, much longer yet. They've already established themselves all over. How do we see that as a part, again, is that a continuing a part of the nationalistic process? That is, one defeat is not going to end that kind of movement that is taking a place. Uh, I also have been thinking in terms of, have we really seen the end of the Arab Spring? Or is it just a pause? I maintain that this Arab Spring may be experiencing, like I've been saying, cruel winter, but that's not the end of it. We have not seen the end of it. That is, the Arab world has continued to experience turmoil mm -hmm. uh, for a very long period of time. And that's part of, again, of the national movement. The young wants to have a better better opportunities, better future. So, so how do you see that evolving over time? Well, I, I, w I would agree with you that as long as you have sort of authoritarian governments, you're going to have movements which are, particularly in the religious 
field give great motivation to young people to join those religious movements because it gives them companionship, it gives them a sense of uh, that they're belonging to a greater uh, institution and that they're being treated as equals with the other that they've joined and, and it becomes a belief system that, that gives them cause to get up every morning. You know, even in democratic societies, you have uh, small sort of subversive movements mm-hmm. which can never be totally knocked out. But the great value of democracy is it allows expressions of people's feelings, no matter what, whether in the left, the right, or the center, so that they don't feel that they have to, in a sense, go underground to, to capitalize on their, on their beliefs. In the market, free marketplace of ideas, they can sort these out with others, and elections allow them to express their discontent. In the Middle East, where you don't have that outlet, people are going to join their tribal or religious entities because that gives them a feeling of, of importance and, and, and meaning. And I think... But, but Stevie, but even if they, get, if they will have it, I don't think in the Middle East the national the aspiration of the young unnecessarily will be made by a democratic form of government. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's what you have seen. Yeah, I'm just saying that my ideal notion would be that the evolution of the Middle East would be towards democracy because democracy does seem to be the only system that can allow differing viewpoints to work together in a way that doesn't destroy the society. It doesn't always work, but that is the notion behind Well, that would have to be, of course, uh, not preconditioned, but it's going to have to adjust the democratic form of government. It must adjust to the culture, to the religion exactly. and, and of, of the area where we're talking so about. So if you have a Sunni culture, you're going to have to adjust democracy to that particular religious movement, or Shiite, Shiite being the other, or Christian, whatever. But do you feel, do you see that there is any way, any sort of compatibility between religion and democracy if we were to apply it specifically to the Middle East? I have complications about that because I'm a good old Democrat in the sense of a small d in, in American history, and we believe in, in the separation of church and state. Uh, on the other hand, France is a Catholic country and has been able to have you know, Protestant religions within it without having the state destroy them. So there are ways of, of adjusting that situation. But again, in, in societies... Unlike, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but unlike France, in the Arab world, where there's a religion, for example, Saudi Arabia, it, it is also the political form. That is, right. that is, you cannot go to Saudi Arabia and interject a political reform based on democratic reform and say, well, yeah, there is a way. Can you, in fact, can you, in fact, uh, have a democracy, say, in a country like Saudi Arabia? I think that's the biggest question that, yeah. that one has to face. I mean, Taiwan was a dictatorship for many decades. It's become a democracy. South Korea, which nobody ever expected to but be. But what is the big difference, however? Religion did not play significant role This there. is true, um, but again, you know, France is a Catholic country, and yet it's been able to have a democracy. Uh, Spain, for that matter, is also a Catholic country. And, and it's, uh, but then the culture is different, France versus any of the Arab states. That is the openness, 
the evolutionary process that took place throughout Europe over so many centuries to get them to the point where we, they find themselves today. So that is, uh, so it was a political process and they've over many, many decades find a way to separate the church from the state. Well, I mean, that's true and it would take, in my view, literally many, many decades, but you know, we do have the example of Tunisia, which is struggling with, with the, both the religious part and, and the political part, and knock on wood, has so far survived five or, five or six years. Uh, so there is a possible model there. Um, we'll, we'll see whether uh, Libya might, be, I know Libya, of course, is in, still in crisis, but with the latest expulsion of, of the ISIS group, Maybe there'll be some attempt to uh, have some basis for at least limited political freedom in that country. But you're right, it's, it's overwhelmed by the religious strength of these movements. And uh, it's very difficult to see how evolution is going to take step by step a process towards a, a full-flung democratic system. Uh, but it's, to me, it's the only hope. I don't, I don't quite understand what other system can work except you get back to the strong man. The question is, how do you go about it in terms of, yes, I agree that uh, democracy is ultimately the best political system, however imperfect it may be, uh, for all people, for that matter, you know, regardless of culture and religion. But if we talk about the Middle East, that's going to be a process, just like European went through. Uh, century for mm -hmm. enterprises, mm -hmm. Middle East is all. But in the interim, you're going to have some kind of political order that provides stability and growth. And that's not happening yet. What, you know, we, we look what happened in Egypt. We see what's happening in, in other Arab countries, in Syria. When there was an effort to change the, the, the political dynamic, the results were awful. So you need that kind of process. And they have not come up. We, the West, did not provide them with a model, a process, that the transitional one, that can take them from their current state of affairs to democratic form of government over a period of time. Do you, we, do you agree that we need that kind, a transitional period? No question about it. And what would that entail from your perspective? Well, it would seem to me, particularly in the Middle East, you've got to have to come to some really regional solution. It has to be a buy-in by every country in, in the region to uh, agree on some parameters for, for how societies should be structured. I mean, even in Iraq, I mean, Christian communities used to live peacefully with Sunni and Shiites. There's, there's, there is historic parallels or, or, or pasts which show that different religions can wi live with each other without necessarily resorting to violence. Especially the three monolithic religions. You know. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, they have been able to live together for, for centuries and centuries throughout the Middle East, but now we are witnessing persecution, specifically in Iraq, in Iran, and Pakistan, of the Christians in particular. In particular. And uh, so, you know, I, I, my, my ideal would be to see the United Nations somehow get involved and, and try to, you know, was it in 19, it was in 2004 when they s issued their economic plan or their uh, appraisal of the economic situation in, in the Middle East where they made clear that there had been no progress for, for many decades. Yeah, I mean, they, they had this in the Gulf. It was organized at one point. 
but really there was no consistency, continuity. In the end, again, they revert to each country to its own in terms of economic development. And there hasn't been a sort of custodium of sorts that's working together. To some extent, the Gulf states do that. But other than that, not, not happening anywhere. I mean, I suppose that the first step is you've got, I mean, this sounds fairly cliche, but you've got to have a negotiated settlement in these countries which uh, allow the different sides to start working together. That is, the Shiites, the Sunnis, the Christians, and so on. Each state has its own peculiar circumstances, and Syria obviously is the most difficult one of all. Um, but unless you have that, those peaceful settlements as a first step, you're never going to get to the economic development. This uh, is level. true, but the state is no longer is representative as a unit. That's the problem we have. When we talk about nationalism today, say, take Iraq or Syria, it is no longer represented by a state. The state itself is fragmented. Mm -hmm. In Iraq, you have at least three major uh, you know, groups, the Sunni, Shia, the Kurds. In Syria, you have six or seven groups that uh, have substantial presence, at least 10% of the community. And each of these groups have now their own national aspirations. Which really comes to bring us to the question is, can you in fact have these many people, these many groupings within a country that have different national aspirations, can in fact sit down and reconcile, specifically after a period of the most horrifying violence that has taken place? Well, this is such a dilemma because, I mean, in a way, we all agree that the Europeans, after the Versailles Treaty, imposed borders and, and uh, states that didn't really exist in, in real life when you consider all the different tribal configurations. So, in a sense, that is dissolving today. It doesn't really, borders seem to be meaningless at this point. And so the question is, with so many different entities that are contending for space in the Middle East, can you bring them together? I mean, I look at Europe. I mean, Europe is cons consists of, I don't know, a dozen or do different countries with different languages and different cultures, and yet they, it took them many centuries to finally come to a, a realization that they all had to live together and they created the European Union. Um, I just find it very difficult to see that happening very quickly in, 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 in the Middle East. Yeah, you're right, but you know, this is the point. You know, Europe, Europe does represent a good example. That, that is, you can create this kind of union, but it has a prerequisite. What is the prerequisite? If you take Sunnis in Iraq, or you take uh, other groups, and uh, one of the prerequisites before they can get together and say, let's, let's live peacefully, Shiite, Sunni, Kurds, and all of that, they need, first of all, to establish their own independent entity. Absolutely. True. And that is, has to be, in my view, part and parcel of any transitional period. No question. That is, if I am independent and I can do my... Then I'm willing to sit down and talk with my neighbor or with talk my... Uh, previous, you know, friends, and then uh, there are roads, the opportunities to do that. But before I establish that, before I can secure what I really want, independently from others, I'm not prepared to go and, and join others, and then as a result, sacrifice 
some of the, my priorities or my concern, my interest, as one my 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 nationality, my national aspiration. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that because once a like the Kurds establish a state for themselves and maintain sovereignty, they can then have the confidence to go into a, a larger union. Exactly. And and feel that they that they can all, if other countries are of the same outlook, that they can all work together because they do have a sense of of, of their of themselves as a society that that uh, has an independence, has a its own culture, has its own viewpoints on foreign issues, and yet are willing to, in a sense, sacrifice a little of their sovereignty in order to create a, a more stable region. And yeah. So I think yeah. that would be the most useful solution, if you recall. And by the secret to this, that is, you're going to have to convince um, those who have been ruling these countries, like you take Assad, or you take now the Shiites in Iraq, you take others in various other Arab countries, they have to be convinced that this is uh, the process they need to accept. Will, God, will uh, a dictator like Assad, if he, if it looks like he may survive this uh, civil war, will he now then agree to say, you know, uh, okay, we respect the right of the Christian, and we respect the right of the Armenian, we respect the right of the, and the Alawite, of course, and the Sunnis, and whatever other grouping, is, and, and uh, let them be, let them establish their own autonomy, let them have their own say, and over time, you know, we can all back get together. But that that mentality does not exist at the, in, at this point. And the second thing that doesn't exist, we in the West continue to preach the same down, same uh, preach you know, the the value of democracy and freedom. And we want to get, still get these countries to be together, however artificially that might be. I I, I do think that that is the problem that the West has with. The way, way they approach the Middle East, which is that they really don't understand that you also you, what you really need is a federal system for each country. A federal system allows different states to work within a larger country entity, the way we do in the in this country. And if Iraq, for example, with its three divisions, the Kurds, the Sunnis, and the Shiites, were to allow each section, each group, to have its own section within the country and then work together as a nation, that might be the most efficacious solution. And again, that would be true of Syria, it would probably be true, I mean, even Iran has its Kurds, and, and so every country, I guess Egypt is probably the only one that doesn't really need a, that kind of system. Yeah, it's more, much more homogeneous than, and, than and Iraq or Syria for them. But uh, it, it seems to me that would be one solution which, if it could be adopted by, you know, kind of the grassroots in, in, in these countries might work. Yeah, I mean, it would work if they are prepared to commit themselves to it, and if they will, ha they will have also developed the type of orientation, understanding that this is a, that's the road, that, this, that the only way for them to survive and grow and flourish is by giving these various groupings the right to live their life as they see fit, and that should be part, in my view, part of the transitional period, however long that might take. And I wouldn't want to think, I don't think I want to limit it to five years or six years or seven years, but the, in the interim, that is, each of these groupings, I think, uh, to me, again, we're talking about nationalism, 
to meet that national aspiration, their national aspiration, is for them to be able to de develop independently from other other groups, from all their neighbors, the kind of lifestyle that they want, the kind of political system they want to develop for themselves. And, and once they feel exactly what you said, independent, unconfident, that they can make it, then they'll be able to reach out. I, I think that probably is, is really the only route at this point. I just, a lot of different systems have been tried over, over the length of the last couple of centuries. And the ones that seem to survive best are ones that allow that kind of feeling of sovereignty to different groups within a society. And um, as you say, the, it, it, if you were to try that approach in the Middle East, first of all, having solved the conflicts which are exist on the ground right now, um, it would be a long process because, it, you, as you point out, in Europe it took them many centuries to figure First, out yeah. that that, yeah. that whole um, issue of, of working together with countries and cultures that were different from their own. So it's a big problem. That's why I think if the United Nations were to come in, it might give them a, a uh, compact or a kind of uh, way of seeing through the divisions in the Middle East on a broader basis, on a broader kind of global basis that... But do you, do you really think the United Nations is in a position, I mean, given its makeup today, its constitution, uh, the lack of real ineffectiveness over the last, I don't know, how many years, they haven't really been able to advance much in terms of peacekeeping, in terms of maintaining, you know, a more uh, wholesome international order. The United Nations have failed in my view. And the United Nations itself needs serious, it has to be reconstituted. I, mean, I think, for example, the General Assembly, the Security Council is not effective at this point. Uh, and I mean, not as effective as could have been. I'm not sure I fully agree with you because I think the United Nations was never, a, was never a world government. It was never an attempt to be a world government. And as long as it wasn't that, it was, it had to only work on the basis that 192 nations would come together and agree on something. As a model, though, I mean, what is the purpose of the United Nations? And especially, say, the United Nations Security Council. What is the mandate of the United Nations Security Council? It's supposed to establish peace around the globe. And then it has no enforcement ability. It does when the big powers agree they, to participate. But then they, oh, they often disagree. Then they, then they that's agree. true. That's, that's the problem. But that was the re when it was set up in 1945, the reason why five countries got the veto, and there are only five countries that have the veto in the Security Council, was because they were the allies who won the Second World War. Of course, yes. And, and, that, and it, without their agreement, the, the, the UN could never work. And, and that was a mark of realism on the part of, of the people who founded the UN that it wasn't going to work unless those five countries were willing to um, participate in, in a common action. So that is what we're stuck with because without those five nations, the U Security Council cannot operate it's, it's at all. Not, it's operating. Let me just go back to, the, to, to something we discussed a little earlier in terms of the national movements in various Arab countries and versus the interest of outside powers in these countries that is really not allowing necessarily 
the, the people in, in these countries to do what they want to do. If you take, uh, for example, Russia, Iran today, and they're meddling in, in Syrian affairs, the United States is meddling in the affairs of many other countries, because these powers have a different interests, and it is, by and large, not consistent, necessarily, with the aspiration of the people themselves. So you have that kind of difficulty that we need to overcome. How do we, how do we reconcile that? Still, which means to me, if that's, if this situation continues, along with the ongoing conflict, uh, it's going to take a very long period of time to reach the kind of, uh, you know, consensus that is, that the various groupings within a given country respect each other's needs and aspirations and interests. Well, I think, I think that's right, and I think it, it goes to show that power politics is still part of the way the world operates. Yeah. But that was why I get back to the realism of the Security Council. You know, when Franklin Roosevelt helped create the UN, he recognized that power politics is the way the world, unfortunately, has to operate. And therefore, if you bring the five most powerful countries together, they're going to help shape the outcome of, of, of the future of the globe. Now, in the, what's happening in, in uh, the Middle East right now with, with, as you say, all these different major powers interfering in one, say, one way or the other is exactly why the UN is not functioning, because they can't come to an agreement. And yes, however much you might criticize John Kerry, you have to give him credit for he, he's constantly trying to bring together... Yeah, he is trying, but I think, I mean, again, I criticize him, not, I, I respect him for trying. But um, I think he did not learn the lesson of what the Middle East is all about. Well, that may be true, but... Uh, and had he really learned carefully the mindset, where the people is coming from, what do they aspire for, what do they want, what is going to be the basis of the Palestinian for the coexistence, what is going to take to settle conflict like in Syria. That is, I think, there's a basic lack of understanding about these various national movements and 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 how to shape we want that he want he felt he can shape it uh, with American views and tradition and that did not work well of course the other problem with American involvement in the Middle East is that the voters in this country are so burned out by US intervention abroad that yeah. we, we have nothing to back ourselves up we can do all the negotiating we want, but we can't back ourselves up with force because we're not willing to use it. And I think that puts us at a disadvantage in trying to shape the outcome of what's going on there. The Russians, on the other hand, were willing, perfectly willing to go in there with force. And that's given them a major role in the outcome. So where do we go I think, from here? I think, again, uh, at this point I would say that it looks like Assad's going to win this battle in Syria, and it probably is time for the U.S. to come to the realization they have to live with Assad and try to deal with him. I think they probably came around to accept that. I mean, the fact that they left him to his own devices actually uh, destroyed half of the country. Hundreds of thousands have died, and the United States pretty much did not interfere in any significant way to stop him. And we could have done certain things to stop him, that did not happen. But on back on the issue of nationalism, I see this in you know, reverting back to the tribal mentality. It's now the mode. <laughs> it's being, you know, 
and that's going to take probably um, many, many years in my view. Well, I mean, you know, you're right about that because what was the the slogan that Donald Trump used in his campaign? America first. Yeah. We want to build our own society here, the hell with the rest of the world. And uh, we're not going to intervene anymore. I mean, he was very isolationist in, in his viewpoint. And that is very much an expression of nationalism. We're going to take care of our own people yeah. first. On the other hand, I mean, in that regard, if he actually is able to make to deliver is in fact by strengthening America, by making it Amer America first, by making America great again, then he could also restore America's global status that has somewhat diminished during the last eight years, 16 years I should say, since the invasion of Iraq to this, to, 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 to this year. Yeah, I mean, in my own viewpoint, the biggest change in America was the Supreme Court's decision to elect George Bush over Al Gore, yeah. because had Al Gore gotten in, I doubt we'd ever gone in Iraq That's at all. Right. That's right. And I don't think we would have been in a great recession. I mean, in a way, George Bush gave us two of the worst outcomes we can imagine, a That's terrible right. domestic situation and a terrible foreign policy situation. Exactly. And we've been, unfortunately, living under those circumstances ever since. Do you think that might have ignited what we are now experiencing? The nationalism in the Oh, I think there's no question about it. I think there's no question about it. Well, Steve, we can talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. <laughs> it was really beautiful and nice to sit with you again. It was great. I uh, enjoyed it very much. I will have, uh, I'm sure, another opportunity sometime. Let's have lunch sometime. We'll, we'll do that. Yeah. Okay, great. Right. I'd, love, I'd love to do that. <laughs> uh, great. That's great. Thank you so right. much. Thank you for listening to this episode of on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.